Sometimes it takes my breath away when I see particular gems buried deep inside the Bible. I mean, what if we had missed finding that 22-word-long pronouncement sitting in the middle of Micah? There's no bold type. There's no enticing banner ad announcing its presence. Or what was God thinking when such a key speech from Jesus as the Sermon on the Mount fits in behind Matthew's stream of genealogy? I mean, what a way to lose an audience. And in the middle of one of Paul's stews and multi-layered arguments comes some very blunt talk about who really is able to get Jesus' message and catch on to God's intentions. Clearly, the Bible wasn't put together by a brand committee or a, a, a media trainer. I, I live in a world of Amazon rankings and hits per minute and concerns about brand extension and search engine optimization. And that, my friends, is for life at one speed, where our brains are on overload and our ears are plugged with sound and we text while trying to do two or three other things. But the Bible seems to insist on a different kind of pace, unapologetically. The Bible asks for a kind of concentration that's not cultivated very much today. The kind of concentration that demands thinking honestly about one's life and purposely choosing how to live. The kind of pacing that we often experience only when we're forced to. That's one of the gifts that little kids and aging parents and perplexing jobs and life's crises can bring us. There's also a deep hunger for more meaning that many of us know if we slow things down enough to feel it. If you haven't been hit lately with one of life's utterly sobering moments, the kind that makes you wonder if you're really up to what you need to do and be, there's a reminder for you right here in that 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29 passage. If you're here today, you are among the foolish the weak, the low, and the despised. There's no room here for big shots. Only when we're each able to hear this frank assessment of who we really are and believe it are we able to grasp the truth of our two other passages this morning. Of course, we use our best wits in life, but always knowing that they are incomplete and that they often blind us to our real weaknesses. We are not free to be lazy and careless and unprepared. We just recognize that our best is not ever enough and that we are often easily misguided. Well, I had one of those cold water in the face moments the other day as I pulled into my mother's driveway, all full of my good intentions. And in my typical um, life is too short presumptuousness, I was trying to do six things at once, including a last-minute phone call. Now, my mother, my brother and I were meeting with my mother to talk about stepping up her level of care as she experiences more memory loss. She's independent and feisty and very intent on not being a burden to anyone. And we wanted to handle this in a way that would dignify her and yet help her accept the truth of what's happening to her. 
I had made three trips to and from the car, carrying stuff through the snow into our house. And then I reached into my pocket for the key to lock the car, and the key wasn't there. Well, my mother and brother watched me rip through my pockets and retrace my route to and from the car and get down on hands and knees to look under the car seats and under the floor mats and dump my purse upside down and look everywhere I could have laid the key down. And my brother soon joined me, occasionally catching my eye with a restrained grin and now and then a half phrase like, help me remember who's having memory loss? <laughs> well, 20 minutes later, we still hadn't found the thing. And so we started our meeting. And when we finished, and I was just about to call Merle to ask him to bring me the spare key, my brother said, let's try once more to find that thing. And so uh, we suited up to go outside. <clears throat> and I was feeling as chagrined as ever. And so first I crawled along the floor, searching under furniture along the path that I had walked in the house. When Kenny came walking back in, swinging the key on his finger and just looking a little too pleased. And first I accused him of setting me up with a prank. And then he said, no, the key was in the ignition. <laughs> I had had this feeling as I pulled into the driveway that morning that I was just trying a bit too much. But my mother, bless her heart, she was so happy for me, never apparently seeing the irony in this morning that was about her memory loss while her daughter bookended the event with a whole drama about misplacing a key and having no memory of what I had done with it. Well, without getting too theologically tangled up, I've wondered since if God provided me an incarnational moment here. Self-confident me, in full charge of my powers, or so I thought, gets to experience what my mother's feeling, a little lost, kind of dumb, embarrassed, wondering what's happening. So maybe I should just stop worrying about God's communication strategies. He seems to continue to specialize in incarnation, that experience of walking in other people's skins and becoming more sympathetic and humble and maybe quieter and more meek as a result. Jesus was just warming up his ministry when he delivered himself of the Sermon on the Mount, that series of blessed verses that have stuck to many of us for a long time. Jesus was meeting one of his first big audiences here in Matthew 5. His disciples, they sat up close and in the first circle, and I've usually kind of assumed that they were the primary people uh, Jesus was speaking to. And I, I imagined that this was inside talk to an intimate group. But if you look ahead to chapter 7, verse 28, you'll see that, in fact, there were more rings to this audience. There were crowds listening. Jesus wasn't trying to escape the crowds. I'm guessing that he went up the mountain so that he could be better heard and seen. And then he started right in the middle of things, right where I am anyway, acknowledging that a good many of us are poor in spirit. I have always heard the chorus of blesseds in these verses. And so I figured that what followed each of those blesseds were qualities to aim for, being, being poor in spirit, mourning, being meek. Certainly, hungering and thirsting for righteousness and being merciful and pure in heart and peacemaking. But then I've also always sort of felt that shooting for meekness or trying to acquire 
poverty of spirit wasn't going to get me there. Instead, I'm coming to believe that these are already qualities of God's children who live firmly in the world. These children of God's are not triumphant, nor insistent, but vulnerable, at risk, unreservedly exposed to the grief and pain and despair that surrounds us and that we each endure. And these children of God's take it in offering themselves. Christians live without protection, says Stanley Hauerwas, without protection from the troubles. It is from that position that we long for recovery and redemption and restoration for ourselves and for others. It is from that position that we hope and believe and hold on to faith. It is in that position, with our eyes barely raised and our hearts barely hopeful, that Jesus addresses us. Only when we are in that position do Jesus' words make sense and give us comfort and a hint of life to come. I have always heard the urgings of the blesseds in these verses, but today I hear the they wills. When we are discouraged and worn down and despairing of good outlasting wrong, when we clearly don't have adequate answers or strength to fill in the incompleteness, we will experience the kingdom of God. We will be comforted. We will be filled. Jesus makes no effort to build a convincing argument He doesn't lay out a brilliant strategy for bringing this to pass, but what he does do is lay a finger right on our deepest wounds, on our gravest hurts, on our most fearsome anxieties, and with that scalpel-sharp perception, lets us know that he knows us, that he recognizes why we might feel this way. Jesus stops short of issuing a timetable for the they wills coming to pass. But I'm willing to believe that the they wills are already happening among us. That the kingdom of heaven, that comfort, that what's most important, that a sense of fullness, that mercy, that glimpses of God, that a keen sense of belonging to God's family is already going on here and around the world. I'm willing to believe that Jesus' deceptively simple language has already translated into real living among us and is being incarnated right here, right now. This passage is the present and the future. This is hope, but not easy hope. Each of us has our hands and our hearts deeply into life. For instance, I bump against a pair of verses in Matthew 5 that aren't easy partners. Verse 6 encourages righteousness, and verse 7 tells us to be merciful. Now, tell me how you practice both of those qualities at the same time. Do what's right. Oh, you messed up? That's okay after all. Really? 
Back to that 22-word challenge from Micah that manages to be both a question and a statement at the same time. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? I've been tormented by this simply put paragraph for a long time. I mean, I like both ideas, but how do you act justly and behave mercifully? Mm -hmm. I I don't know how to do that, but sure. I I don't even know how to think about it, but okay. Most of the time, we Mennonites work the justice side diligently. We love our discipline. We love our action. We love taking up the causes of the dispossessed. We seem to operate with cosmic ledger sheets in our heads that direct our hands and our plans. But what about this other piece, this equally weighted instruction to love mercy? Well, for whom and when and under what circumstances? And there we hang. Caught in a moral tension that requires divine direction and very humble hearts. Acting justly and mercifully seems to require a kind of uncomfortable straddling. But folks, that's not the end of the verse. We've been given three phrases here, and without that last one, we might dither forever, or go black and white and pick just one of the first two directions. To walk humbly with our God is not some afterthought. It is the platform. It is the first principle, it is where we begin, it is enough. This is for each of us. This is also for us as a local community of faith right here. This is for us as a global family of faith as well. But sisters and brothers, once again, this isn't easy. This calls for confession and discernment and telling our own stories to each other and praying for God's guidance. How to act. How to regard situations that we face. How to incarnate God's presence. How to be people of God. Well, I've been thinking about our new piano and about our torment, about whether we should spend $40,000 for an instrument that will, okay, enhance our worship and make us want to sing more and surround us with assurance when we are worn down. But in spite of that, we've, we've really wondered if we shouldn't use our funds instead to buy another affordable house for a family in our neighborhood. We've wondered if we're just maybe covering up an indulgence when we should be giving to others. Well, hey, who says we can't give this lovely instrument to others? Maybe we have a justice mercy opportunity here. Remember the man who is part of our Monday night congregation that Ron talks about now and then? The guy who's been rooting for our new piano ever since he heard about it and one day handed Ron some dollars to put in the piano fund? Maybe he's a kind of clue here about how we might extend this gorgeous instrument beyond Sunday mornings and beyond ourselves. What if, when the weather warms up, we just opened all our windows and offered music to our neighbors? 
What if we opened the front door and the back door and we made the lobby a place to visit and the auditorium a place to join the music and if you don't sing, we'd still need you to be present to welcome others or just enjoy the music yourself. We could do a Saturday or a Sunday uh, 4 o'clock hour of hymn singing with piano accompaniment and piano interludes with the windows wide open. We would benefit and there's a good chance our neighbors would too. We would offer what we have a beautiful instrument, a treasure of songs, a love of singing together, and we could see what happens. We have some history and some precedents for this. There have been saints before us who worshiped and lived their faith in this building. A good many years ago, Ben Wittenberg's mom, Cindy, attended here and blessed us with her piano playing. And she often accompanied the choir and one time she suggested that the choir sing some numbers from the People's Mass book. It was a new hymnal that had been recently published by the Roman Catholic Church. And Cindy had discovered the book from the music uh, director at Sacred Heart Church on West Walnut Street here in town. And she had fallen in love with many of the songs. And when she told the music director this, he said, well, when I was a boy, we lived in the city of Lancaster. And on warm summer evenings, we used to sit on our back porch and listen to people singing through the open windows of a Mennonite church that was nearby. I learned many great and wonderful hymns of your faith on my back porch. And when I became a member of the committee to put this mass book together, I made sure that these great hymns were included for our people to learn. Cindy said, I asked him where he lived in Lancaster. Oh, on East Chestnut Street, one block north of Orange. It was your church where I heard all those hymns, he suddenly realized. i got to admit that I've often longed for air conditioning in this auditorium. But why don't we just push the windows up a little higher on warm days and give music to this community? We've been offering weekly meals to our neighbors. What if we ventured more deliberately toward nourishing their hearts and souls, too, and our own. Maybe part of our calling is to create spaces, to provide spaces of rest and reorientation, spaces where brokenness and anxiety are held off, where fear and dread step back for a time and where, when we leave that place, we carry with us a memory in our many senses that we are not alone. What if alongside our plans for buying and renovating more houses in our neighborhood, we also offered encouragement and hope through our singing? We'd be filling out our engagement with our community. It'd be like turning our building inside out. We would put down a little bit more of our burden of carefulness. We might humbly learn new ways in which justice and mercy hold hands. I read recently a comment made by Britain's chief rabbi about the Jewish practice of asking hard questions of God and the Jewish tradition of arguing with God. He said, we ask questions not because we doubt, but because we believe. When it comes to faith, we learn by living and doing. In fact, there is no way of understanding faith without practicing faith. 
And so a we will for us this morning. We will be blessed as we walk humbly with our God in old ways and in new ways, incarnating our faith while experiencing the wonder of justice and mercy together.